Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Harmon here with you live from Portland, Oregon. Our, our daughter's getting married this week. We're, Louise and I are here. We're having a fine time. Um, uh, yes, I'm broadcasting against a blank wall. We're going to do something about that tomorrow, but it's not a hostage situation. <laughs> oh, my. Anyhow... Uh, strange news. First of all, um, I've really missed you, and I had a wonderful, but I had a wonderful trip to Germany, and you know, this is the SalemInternational.org organization. In fact, uh, one fellow, uh, his name is Mike, uh, heard me on Wednesday talking about this, and he was in Germany, and he came over and spent a couple days and visited and everything. It was great. Nice guy to meet. Uh, works for American Forces Radio, in fact. Um, so, Anyhow, a lot going on, and uh, the, the main thing, everywhere I went um, while I was in Germany, everywhere I went, people wanted to ask me about Donald Trump and about what are the Republicans doing, and has America gone crazy? And it wasn't just the, you know, this guy's gross, and is he you know, grabbing women and all that kind of stuff. It was more the, the, the genuine concern that in his, in his rush to... Uh, quote, make America great again, that he was going to come out somehow just like, you know, destroy the economy or blow up the world order or crash the, the stock market. Um, and a lot of people very, very worried. I mean, worried to the point of like trembling in their voices about what Trump might do with North Korea. And of course, Trump just gave a speech at the United Nations about North Korea. So um, I... In fact, the details are, are pretty amazing. This is uh, there's there's a lot to get to today, and and we'll be getting to your calls too. So you know, feel free to to give us a shout. But um, here's what Donald Trump said this morning. He said, um, uh, "Here, let me start at the beginning. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice." but to totally destroy North Korea. Now, 
You know, if I was a North Korean, I would take that as a threat, as a fairly serious threat. If I was a South Korean, I'd frankly be very, very concerned about that. He went on to say, Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime, uh, referring obviously to Kim Jong-un. The United States is ready, willing, and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, if, if you've got a, a couple of authoritarians, basically. We've got, you know, the authoritarian Trump and the authoritarian Kim. And in a very real way, that's what's going on. I mean, Kim Jong-un has been dealing with people like, uh, prior to this, um, uh, George W. Bush was not so much of an authoritarian. At least he didn't play one on the world stage. Um, I suppose that's debatable given what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it, it, it not, not nothing like Trump, let's say. And, and of course, Barack Obama was a diplomat. President Obama, you know, wanted to work things out. And, 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 and Bill Clinton, to a large extent, the same thing, wanted to work things out. And in fact, Bill Clinton had actually worked out a freeze with Kim Jong-un for their nuclear program. Or actually, I think it was with Kim's father he worked out that deal. And because, um, yeah, because Kim's only been in power for six years. So Bill Clinton, you know, worked out this deal and, and everything, you know, everything was frozen, everything was fine. Because what, what Kim wants, and, and frankly, you know, what I think probably most countries around the world that we tend to vilify, unfortunately, um, want more than, you know, hey, we've got nuclear weapons. They want respect. They want to be viewed as legitimate. They want to be viewed as, a, as an essential and legitimate and meaningful part of, of the international community. And, I, you know, I, on this program, I, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post back maybe a month ago or so. And it wasn't talking about Kim, it was talking about Putin, but the effect is the same. It was saying, you know, what he really wants is respect. Well, you know, that's fairly obvious. And, 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 but then the art, article said, we must not give it to him. Well, wait a minute. You know, why not give, uh, you know, Putin respect? Why not give Kim respect? What does that cost to say we acknowledge that you're the leader of a nation? Now, let's talk one leader of a nation to another leader of a nation. Rather than this, oh, you're, you're some kind of evil person. I mean, you know, we all know Kim is crazy. He's, he murdered his half-brother, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, in, in North Korea, if you, don't, if you don't smile enough when his name is mentioned, you, your, your life is at risk. Of course it's a horrible regime. But you're not going to get anywhere by yelling at Kim about how horrible he is. He'll, he'll just say, you know, well, those are your standards and these are mine. You know, but, but what about interacting country to country? In other words, what about diplomacy? Bill Clinton was successful with this. And then George W. Bush gave that axis of evil speech that David Frum wrote. And, you know, I don't know if David Frum is still having trouble or ever had trouble sleeping over that, but, but I sure would. I, I, the, this, that speech in which, in which George W. Bush got up there and, and, and I don't recall if it was a joint address to Congress, uh, in a, a State of the Union address or before the UN, I'm pretty sure it was a State of the Union address. Um, he said um, words to the effect of, you know, this axis of evil of, of Iraq, North Korea, and Iran. And, you know, Iraq had no nuclear program whatsoever. Saddam had given up all his weapons of mass destruction way back during the Clinton years and had been inspected 16 ways to Sunday and Hans Blix was there and Scott Ritter was there and all that stuff was going on. So, you know, Bush was essentially lying about that. 
And, and, and Saddam Hussein had no ability to, to acquire nuclear weapons, or at least quickly. You know? So there was, there was no threat there to us, and frankly, even to his neighbors, at all. So, hey, let's spend a trillion dollars and kill thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis just so George W. Bush can get himself reelected in 2005. But, so there was that. But then the other piece of the fallout was that both, uh, you know, we had a deal with Iran, too, where, you know, they had frozen their nuclear program. And we had a deal, uh, not two, we didn't have a deal with Iraq because they didn't have a nuclear program. But we had deals in place that Bill Clinton negotiated, by and large, with both um, uh, North Korea and Iran. And both of these countries, I mean, there were IAEA inspectors on the ground, there were cameras continually monitoring things, what was going on. And George W. Bush comes out and makes this stupid statement, oh, these people are evil. You know, define evil. I mean, what the heck does that mean? And what does that mean in this context? So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's political rhetoric. It was, it, was, it was what Bush told his biographer in 1999, Mickey Herskowitz, that he was going to do if he became president, was have a real war so he'd get the political capital that his daddy didn't get because he only had a three-day war. So Trump is now following that same tradition, which raises an interesting question, and this is kind of where I started with this whole rant talking about authoritarians, is, is it possible to out authoritarian and authoritarian? Um, it may be if you have relative parity, you know, like for example, Trump and Putin. I mean, we both have equal nuclear weapon arsenals, um, but with basically a trapped mouse, which is Kim Jong-un. You know, a trapped mouse has, a, has a, a heck of a lot more to lose and, and, a, and a lot more latitude in their behavior than does, you know, another person face-to-face -to, -face to, to mangle this metaphor. And, I, you know, I think that the, the bet that's being made here by John Kelly, because obviously John Kelly vetted this thing, you know, the general. The bet he's making is that is that you know the language that Kim understands is the language of authoritarianism, and that if Trump uses that language, he'll respond in a positive way. I'm, you know, I agree that he's an authoritarian, but I disagree that he's going to respond that way. So I, this this concerns me tremendously. Meanwhile, we've got another massive hurricane coming. In. Welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you. We. Uh, but we've, we've covered a few things here. Uh, one of them, this is, this is one of the more fascinating pieces that I've seen today. This is over truth, truthout.org. It's by uh, Wendell Potter, our old friend. Wendell's a regular on the program. He used to be a, a senior executive with Aetna. He was uh, vice president of marketing, as I recall. And uh, finally just said, to hell with this, to heck with this, pardon my language. And, uh, you know, we're going to, you know, I'm, I want to do something better with my life. And he's got some really great projects going on right now, the Tarbell thing and, and, and whatnot. We'll get him back on the program to talk about this. But he points out polls show that a growing number of Americans are warming up to the idea of single-payer health care. And um, what is most relevant, he says what is relevant is that most of us have lost faith in private health insurers and want the government to do more. And then he ta he's looking at this poll from June. They just, you know, the, the, the results, uh, Pew Center uh, did, you know, takes a crunch of the numbers and all that sort of thing. 60% of those surveyed said the federal government has the responsibility to provide coverage to all Americans. 60%. 
And he says, we've seen similar results in years past. He says, as a former head of corporate communications for the global health insurance company, Cigna. I, I said that, and I was Cigna, I'm sorry. He says, I saw surveys on a regular basis that consistently showed a sizable percentage of Americans held private health insurance companies in very low regard and would be happy not to have to deal with them. And uh, in fact, only 19% of Americans, in this was back in 2007, viewed health insurance companies favorably. And the same poll showed 77% of Americans thought Congress should, quote, do something about the unreasonable cost of health insurance and other health care services. Uh, more people favored a Canadian-style health care system than any other potential solution. And that's the sort of thing that's moving in this direction. And now you've got uh, you know, the, the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Warren Buffett, coming out and pointing out that, that you know, a single-payer system, uh, he, he calls medical costs. I mean, this is remarkable. And keep in mind, you know, uh, Toyota relocated a factory or located a factory in, in uh, Canada because they, they found that having it in the United States cost uh, you know, a small fortune, basically. It cost a lot of money to have that thing in the United States. And so they, they put it in Canada um, because there was more money in the cost of the health care than in the cost of the steel. And so here he says, the, 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 this is such an amazing phrase. He's describing these health insurance companies. Keep in mind, the health insurance companies don't provide any medical services whatsoever. They will not vaccinate your child. They will not take out your appendix. They will not you know, bandage your cuts. They will not fix a broken arm. All they will do is take your money, skim a bunch off the top, typically around 20%, and pass along the rest to your doctor your, or your pharmacy or your hospital or whatever it may be. So Wendell Potter describes them as the tapeworm of the American economic system. Um, he, uh, this is uh, another uh, consultant, uh, healthcare consultant, a fellow by the name of Munger. He says, the massive amounts of excess cost in the U in US, uh, current US healthcare system, which he described as a Rube Goldberg system that arose by accident. Well, it wasn't quite accident. I mean, it was in, in some parts, in some ways, a response to you know, the World War II and all that is uh, his reason for supporting single payer. PricewaterhouseCooper has weighed in on this. Uh, they, they say the uh, growing cost of medical costs in the employer insurance market are going to grow 2.6% next year, excuse me, 6.5% next year. And by, by way of comparison, the consumer price index is going up a little more than 1%, 1.7%. So medical costs are triple. They're growing three times faster than the cost of everything else. Even when we have this low inflation rate, you know, thanks to the Fed just, you know, messing with our money supply, as it were. So uh, as Buffett and Munger made their public declarations of support for single-payer systems, several like-minded business executives were forming. And this is amazing. I mean, this is, just, just keep in mind, just, you know, just a few years ago, a public option was a bridge too far. Oh, let's let some people buy into Medicare. Now it's like, let's, let's give everybody Medicare, right? And so, anyway, and of course, business executives and everybody. Now they've, they've created this organization called Business Leaders Transforming Healthcare. And the ultimate goal, they say, is single payer healthcare in the United States. Richard Master, who is the CEO of a company called MCS Industries, which is the largest manufacturer of wall and poster frames in the United States, 
He founded this group after years of double-digit rates, rate increases in his health, uh, his company's health insurance. And he said the biggest drivers of those were, were the uh, prescription drugs. And he, he says, in fact, the, the cost of treating just two of his employees for Hep C was more than $260,000. And by the way, these are drugs that you and I paid to develop, by and large. You know, the, the individual drug companies, they'll, they'll tweak a drug a little bit here and there. But the actual development of the drugs, the, the new families, the new categories, that's called basic research, generally speaking. I mean, it's not just raw R&D. It's like basic research. It's like thinking completely out of the box. You know, what, we, you know, we had penicillin. Well, we figured out that mold, because, you know, the Native Americans used to, well, actually even old, you know, the, the European uh, shaman, you know, and, and the, the, the so-called, uh, you know, witches or uh, midwives, and there were, you know, depending on your perspective, whether you were the Catholic Church or whether you were having your life saved, um, you know, the knowledge was there that if you took some moldy bread and put it on a wound, that the infection didn't happen, right? So they knew about the mold and the penicillin, but then somebody thought, well, what about bacteria as a source of an antibiotic, right? And that got us that all those drugs that end with acillin, you know, amoxicillin and, and whatnot, um, uh, or, or maybe it's the myosins. Yeah, it's the myosin, like streptomyosin, neomyosin. All those come from, I believe, come from bacteria rather than mold. So we've got multiple sources out there. So to think of a whole new way to do this, well, gee, might there be some, some new kind of you know, something that can be used that can be turned into a useful drug? Um, that's not the kind of work, generally speaking, that drug companies do. Some of the new, you know, the startup companies do, especially if they've got something they think is really hot. But most of that is funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health, excuse me, the National Institutes of Health, and paid for with your and my tax dollars. And much of it is done at universities. They, they run the money into the universities, the universities do the research, and then, you know, the, and then it goes out, to, and, it, and then the drug companies end up with it. I mean, this is how bizarre our laws are around this. Look at, you know, you know Heather, what's her name? Uh, Joe Manchin's daughter, who runs the, the company that makes EpiPen. You know, uh, Heather Thresh, Bresh. Um, that, that she's, I mean, they're, they're able to take a product that was literally developed in 1890. The uh, epinephrine, or epinephrine, I, I, I think it's pronounced epinephrine, the, the drug, it's an, and it's an analog of adrenaline that you give somebody if they're having an anaphylactic reaction, an allergic reaction, and you give them the shot so that if they get a bee sting or eat some peanuts or something, they don't, you know, their throat doesn't close up and they don't die. That drug was developed in 1890. The system for injecting that drug automatically that makes a, an EpiPen an EpiPen was developed by the U.S. military for use in field hospitals as typically for morphine injection, for painkiller, for somebody gets a shot with a bullet, bang, okay, you know, you're gonna feel better soon. And they didn't have to go through all the whole song and dance of finding, you know, and, and storing it and whatnot. It was, it was a wonderful invention. But how did, how did her company end up with this? And how did they end up the sole supplier? And so that they could take the product that cost them, you know, pennies worth of the drug. I mean, literally pennies worth of the drug. And, and probably less than a dollar or so for the, for the injection mechanism, and sell it for what, $500, $600? I mean, these are, these are the symptoms of a badly broken system, a system that we need to fix, and we need to get about fixing it right now. And what the Republicans are trying to do is just a complete mess. We'll be back with you. 
Did you know that the NTSA says that 94% of car crashes are tied to human error and 60% of accidents are due to lane departure and lack of advance warnings? That's because only about 40% of people apply their brakes in car crashes because they most don't have enough advance warning. Now there's an affordable anti-collision system that you can add to vehicles years 2000 or newer. It's called the RD140, or can be added. It's called the RD140, and it's from Safe Drive Systems. The RD140 is a front anti-collision radar and lane departure system that works at night and in all weather conditions, as well as just normal driving. Prevents up to 90% of potential injury-causing or fatal car accidents. It's like having an extra set of eyes in hard-to-navigate conditions. And when drivers are distracted, it alerts the driver with an audio and visual signal when they're too close to the vehicle in front or when deviating from their lane. Gives up to five extra seconds of reaction time and is great for seniors and teens. Go to safedrivesystems.com to find out how to add the RD140 to your car. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive free installation by a professional technician at your home or office. Currently available in a limited number of states, so go to safedrivesystems.com and use the code THOM for free installation. Go to safedrivesystems.com today. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you, broadcasting live from Portland, Oregon today. And Gerald uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. You're running for Congress, Gerald? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I've, I've listened to you for over 10 years, and you've pretty much solidified my political opinions <laughs> over the years. So, and I, I, first off, I wanted to do uh, best wishes for your daughter. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm uh, running against, uh, uh, in a very red district, it's uh, been gerrymandered pretty badly, and uh, against a fellow by the name of Mark Walker. And, um, I was just calling up to try to put in a shameless plug so I can get some name recognition out there. I know you have a, a large audience in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, oh, we encourage people who are running for, for, for you know, public office to call in and try and get some name recognition. I, I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to provide a vehicle for that. Gerald, uh, are you running for, if, uh, because of this time delay, let me ask you a couple of questions and then you can just answer them in sequence. Um, what office are you running for? Is it state or federal? Uh, do you have a website? And if so, what is the website? And you tell people your name and, and, and just give us a, a, you know, a couple of sentences about why people should you know, go to your website, support you or vote for you if they're in the district. Okay, well, I am running for the uh, seat for Mark Walker in the 6th District of the uh, United States uh, Congressional seat. And uh, I don't have an actual web page yet. I'm working on it. But I do have a GoFundMe, (laughs) and that that is Wong for Congress at the GoFundMe site. And I have a Facebook page that lists quite a few of my opinions and some videos of of my opinions and what I stand for. And uh, you'll find out that uh, they pretty much parallel your opinions. But uh, that's at uh, Gerald Wong for U.S. Congress uh, NC District 6. And uh, that's pretty much it. My last name is Wong, W-O-N-G, not Wan or Long. (laughs) I've been... Okay. But anyway. Right. And, and, And Gerald is spelled with a G? Yes, G E R A L D. Okay. W O N G. Okay. Well, Gerald. Anybody can Gerald. send my way. Anybody would like to come over there and, and help me out. It's, it's appreciated. 
Yeah. Okay, Gerald, good luck. Keep us up to date on how it's going. It's great to hear from you. Thank you. Ray in Bushnell, Florida. Hey, Ray, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I'm back to the most important issue, which is climate change. And uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to say there are only two proactive methods of sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. And I'm extremely knowledgeable in both uh, areas and methods. I've, I've worked in these areas on an industrial level. Now, the IPCC discusses it a little bit, but, you know, you never hear about it in the U.S. And uh, one is agroforestry on a carbon farming level. And two, there's a special mm -hmm. way to oil, you know, in a natural systemic process. And I can't find anyone to work with on this. There's, there's no one doing anything about it in our country. You know, it's, it's very sad. And um, we have the largest tree farms in the country here, container tree farms. And we have huge potting soil companies. And I've, I've worked for both of these industries for a long, long time. And I know the science very, very well. It's, it's not known in that industry very well, but I know it from that point of view and from the scientific point of view. And I need a network. Uh, I can't find anyone. Uh, you know, climate change is literally centered here by the governor. And um, they don't allow anybody to discuss it. And I need the network. So I've left my information there with your assistant, my contact information. I know that you know a lot about it, having gone to Norway and that sort of thing, but I know a whole lot about this and what to do about it. And I want to do something about it. I see people on television constantly yakking away, but they don't ever do anything. I have methods and systemic methods on what to do about this, and I need help, and I need contact. I don't know anything about yeah. that in the business world. Ray, one of the one of the best ways to get that kind of information out is to is to build a website around it or a Facebook page around it, and then just you know start start promoting it, and it'll either catch on or it won't. I mean, you know, pe people will kind of crowdsource, vet it, and and uh, and let you know what they think about it, and 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 like that. But uh, and, and and Ray, thank you so so much for the call. The the uh, so let me encourage you to create something like that, and just like Gerald, who called a minute ago, you know, feel free to call up and just give a plug for it. Um, the uh, Louise and I were down in Costa Rica for this documentary that we're doing on climate change that's going to come out later this. Uh, well, actually, it's probably going to be next spring, and uh, there is a huge program down there. Uh, CarbonUnderground.org is the website. There's a huge project down there where they're doing soil sequestration. If you, can, if you can bring dirt back to life, turn it back into soil, so it's got a billion microorganisms per teaspoon rather than just dead sterile dirt, which is what you get from agricultural farming practices, or from industrial agricultural pr practices. But instead, if you can use um, what we call organic, but what you know for uh, millions of years was called just the normal way of farming, right? Um, if we could just go back to that, we could sequester a, an enormous amount of carbon. I mean, of that 410 parts per billion uh, or to, per million uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, I don't know the exact number, but a consequential percentage of it is simply due to the loss of soil and forests. So you're onto something. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us, Medea Benjamin, the co-founder of Code Pink and, and uh, GlobalExchange.org. CodePink.org, and uh, perhaps most, uh, and, and just, you know, activist and, and 
brilliant American patriot extraordinaire. Uh, but uh, also, I want to emphasize her new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection, is a book that if you want to understand that part of the world, and frankly, it, it is affecting the entire planet, you have to read this book. Uh, Medea, welcome to the program, or welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It's great to have you with us. I was uh, reading a couple of in-depth pieces on the whole uh, situation with uh, Myanmar and uh, Rohingya, um, uh, and cor correct me if I'm mispronouncing it, please, um, that, that basically, uh, well, actually, rather than trying to characterize what may be a partial understanding on my part, um, you're here, let me toss it to you. Who are the Rohingya? Why is it that, that Myanmar, the former Burma, is, is, is expelling them and murdering them and burning their villages and killing their people? And, and you know, now we've got the, the refugees, horrible refugee situation. What are the depths or dimensions of that uh, situation? Well, the Rohingya have lived um, for centuries, actually, in this area. Uh, but they are not recognized by the present government of Myanmar. In fact, the state's official stance is that the Rohingya ethnic group doesn't exist. Uh, instead, they're referred to as uh, Bengali, uh, which is trying to link them to a foreign land that they have never stepped foot in, uh, despite the fact that they do share cultural similarities. But uh, Burma doesn't recognize the Rohingya as citizens, which keeps them stateless and uh, limits their access to public services, discriminates against them. There have been periods of attacks on them uh, over the years, but the most uh, uh, brutal one came at most recently in uh, August after um, a, uh, an armed Rohingya group attacked a number of the uh, outposts of the police, and um, the military has uh, responded with terrible brutality. Yeah. And they are Muslim. What, what, how does that play into this? Well, they are Muslim, and this is a, a majority Buddhist country. And uh, I think the general uh, impression of Buddhists around the world is that they are this very peace-loving people. In fact, I love the signs at some of the protests I've been to saying, what would Buddha do? Um, because uh, certainly this uh, brutality of the government has changed the face of, uh, of Buddhism. And it's also changed the face of what people thought of uh, the Nobel Peace Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, who was uh, for so long in uh, detention and a fighter for human rights. And uh, the world looked towards her as somebody who had moved the country into uh, a democracy and have been so uh, upset at the way that she has been silent until actually it was just today that she finally spoke out on this issue. Uh, but not in any way that really places the blame where it belongs, which is on the uh, the, the military. Uh, the day before yesterday when I was in Germany, I read a, a fairly long analysis piece on this in one of the German newspapers that, that basically put forward the following um, narrative that the Rohingya had been, as you, as you point out, an oppressed minority uh, and, and uh, you know, suffered very badly for years and years, um, but they're also Muslim, and that into their particular, what used to be a relatively benign form of Islam, uh, 
um, has over the last couple of decades come a number of uh, evangelists from the, uh, shall we call it Saudi version or Wahhabist version of, or, or more hard, hard line, whatever, uh, you know, you would know the right phrase and I'll, I'll wait for you to tell me, um, of Islam. And that created uh, a small faction among the Rohingya, sort of like the, uh, the weathermen were a small faction of the SDS back in the day. And, and that small faction has adopted violence, and, and they have, they have uh, you know, bombed police stations and attacked uh, the government and whatnot. And so what the government is doing right now in Burma, and again, this is, this is like not even 1% of the Rohingya, but it's some of, the, some of these, these fanatics who think that if they, if they can do this, they go to heaven immediately and the whole 72 virgins routine. And, and the consequence of that is that the government has responded by simply saying, okay, kill them all. You know, we can't, we can't uh, help, you know, we're not going to get rid of these people. We're not willing to provide the kind of social services and citizenship and respect that, that a people really need to feel integrated into a society. So, and they're feeling alienated and we're not willing to do the work to do that. So we're just going to basically expel them. It's sort of like Donald Trump trying to expel all the Muslims from the United States. Well, actually it's not, that's a, that's a, ter that's a terrible metaphor. But, but that that really was the cause of the whole thing. That, that's where it began was, was you know, some of these. And now it's just, and, and so now they're feeding each other. Now, as the people are being murdered and tortured, the, many of the people are now starting to join the the, 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 the right-wing crazies and fighting back, but they're being slaughtered, etc. Is that a, a reasonably accurate analysis? Well, except I think that we have to understand that there have been repeated waves of violence against the Rohingya since the late 1970s, and that, uh, as unfortunately happens in so many places around the world, when people's legitimate grievances are not addressed, uh, there are certain people within that group that will turn to violence. Um, for uh, some people, they are called terrorists. For others, they are seen as freedom fighters. Um, but uh, as you are saying, Tom, it's the majority of nonviolent, peaceful uh, families that have been attacked. Um, there are about 1.1 million Rohingya that remained in, in Burma, and now we have about 420,000 of them having fled to Bangladesh just in the last month. So the level of the crisis is horrendous with the food being scarce, uh, aid agencies don't have the aid they need. Um, the government, I would say that Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, with the statement that she made today, uh, had some real falsehoods within that, saying, for example, that the country is open for human rights uh, people and humanitarian workers to come in and journalists. Uh, but that is indeed not the case. And in fact, uh, journalists can only come in with government minders and are not allowed to go to the villages that have been burned and, and uh, talk to the people who are fleeing. Uh, they, if they do it, they are doing it on the, the sly. So um, the government has tried to keep people from coming in to tell the truth, although on the positive side, I would say the truth has been getting out, particularly by talking to these terrorized uh, refugees who have been flooding into Bangladesh. Right. Is there is there any truth to the implication of this article I read that had Saudi Arabia not been exporting Wahhabism for a hundred years, there may still be violence? You know, sort of like you know the U.S. rising up against George the Third. You know, feeling 
the Rohingya feeling like they've been screwed by the government or treated badly by the government, they're going to fight back. But it wouldn't have taken this particular form, or is that um, kind of a side issue that maybe that newspaper was grinding their anti-Muslim acts? We just have a half a, half a minute here, uh, Medea. No, I think that's true. The Saudis and Pakistanis have been sending money to the Rohingya uh, to build up this army. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be quite small, about 1,500 fighters, uh, but they have been quite effective and have brought this terrible uh, response from the military. So, yes, I would say there is truth to that. Amazing. So our evangelical militarism around the world and the Saudis, uh, what a mess. And you are the expert on it, and your book is so good, Kingdom of the Unjust. I, I, I please people read this book; it's extraordinary. Medea Benjamin, thank and CodePink.org. Thank you, Medea. Thanks for having me. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be right back with uh, your calls and more of the news of the day right after this. And welcome back. Uh, David in uh, Searcy, Arkansas, watching Free Speech TV. Hey, David, what's on your mind? It's a simple comment from a simple man about the global warming. Is uh, When people always ask me about uh, what I believe about global warming, and I do believe in global warming, is that I explain it very simply as uh, 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 a man going to his well, uh, the well being earth. Uh, you dip your water out of the well. And then you turn around and you defecate in your well. Well, your your water ain't going to taste funny that day or the next day, but pretty soon you got to give up that well. And that's how I explain it. And uh, I think it's a simple way for anyone to understand it. Yeah, I mean that's or you know a little less scatological is that the the fossil fuel industry is basically using our atmosphere as an open sewer. They're they're dumping their waste into it. And we're paying the cost of that in, in the form of these more severe storms, in the form of, and, and it's not just carbon dioxide. I mean, there's all that particulate matter, um, which causes cancer and things, you know, the, 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 the various hydrocarbons and whatnot. And, and so, you know, in a very real way, we're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. We subsidize them with direct cash subsidies worldwide of over $5 trillion a year. It's about $350 billion a year in the United States. And that doesn't include the cost of the Navy protecting the, the uh, oil vessels as they come here from Saudi Arabia and whatnot. And, and uh, you know, that, that subsidy is just outrageous. And then on top of that, we pay for the health care for people who get sick as a consequence of it. We pay for rebuilding the houses of people whose, you know, whose homes were destroyed as a result of global warming. So they're very much these, these oil, coal, and gas companies following this kind of classic predatory business model of what's called internalizing profits and externalizing um, expenses. And those externalities, uh, you know, are, are, that's the price we pay. So, David, I agree. I mean, your, your, your metaphor is a little more colorful than mine, but I think we're saying the exact same thing. Thanks a lot for the call. Great to hear from you. We'll be right back. What I like about Harry's is their amazingly high-quality shave. It's smooth and close, just how a shave should be. And Harry's passes savings on to you by selling directly over the Internet. No more frustrating drugstore trips. Harry's knows some of you guys might be skeptical of trying out a new razor brand. So instead of just telling you, Harry's wants to prove to you that you'll love their stuff with their new free trial. 
They made it a special free trial with everything you'd need to evaluate Harry's. It's customizable. You try it for free. It's a $13 value. Someone from Harry's team even checks in to see how your trial is going, and it's 100% risk-free, guaranteed. You can even call and cancel or get a refund whenever you want. So why not give Harry's a shot and judge for yourself? Head over to harrys.com slash tom to get it now. It's harrys with an s.com slash t-h-o-m. To get started with Harry's free trial offer today, all you cover is just a few bucks in shipping. To get your free trial set, including a handle, blade, shave gel, and travel blade cover, go to harrys.com slash tom. That's harrys.com slash t-h-o-m. Don't wait. Get started with Harry's today. Welcome back. Welcome back. John Harvin here with you. And uh, Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. How's it going? Now, hey, I just wanted to comment about this speech that President Trump gave to the United Nations. And um, there, was a, there was a story I was listening to earlier about um, has Germany replaced the United States as the leader of the free world? Now, I know that's very complicated, but I think Trump's speech uh, today kind of indicates that perhaps Germany has replaced the United States. And um, it's not just, uh, you know, based on what... Certainly as the moral leader of the world. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and of course that's a big part of being a leader of the free world. And um, the, uh, you know, something you said about, you used the word respect. Now, you know, respecting these other countries. Now, I know, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's well and good. It's kind of a loaded term, or an ambiguous term. But um, responsible, responsibility is, a, is the one I would choose because in Germany seems far more responsible. Like uh, in negotiating with North Korea, it's, it's, an, it's inevitable. I mean, it, we're going to have to do it. There's just no way around it. And also, you We've know, done it before. Germany is doing successfully. Yeah. Yeah. And we've done uh, it before successfully. Did you say Germany's uh, negotiating with uh, North Korea successfully? Um, no, I said that we have done that before. Bill Clinton, you know, worked out that deal that froze their nuclear program. And my recollection is that he did it with the collaboration of, of at least several of the European Union countries and probably the United Nations. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm frankly not a, you know, super familiar with all the, all the, the details of it. And, but but I, I don't think it was a purely bilateral deal. I think it was a multilateral deal and maybe even a UN deal. And of course, it all blew up the day, the, the, literally the day that George W. Bush called North Korea part of the axis of evil. And you don't call people evil. And by saying that North Korea, all, mostly what they're looking for is respect, uh, and, and frankly, that we should give them respect. I'm not saying like, you know, you respect somebody because you think they're wonderful. I'm saying it's more like, you know, you respect your neighbor's uh, uh, lot line and, and, you know, don't let your dog poop in their yard, that kind of thing. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's a matter of being good neighbors. It's a matter of, uh, you know, the, the North Korean people and, and Kim and the Chinese and the South Koreans, that's, they live with each other. They're going to work this out eventually and, 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 and you know, and to some extent are. The last thing they need is Donald Trump threatening to throw a nuclear weapon into there. Yeah, well, and, and just look at what, how absurd so, what he said was. He said that, um, okay, 
All right, so, so we're going to destroy them utterly and then ask other countries to help us rebuild them? I mean, come on. I mean, it's, it's clownish. And then and it's not just Donald Trump. It's, like I said, General McMaster makes me worry, too, because there's this co- all this commentary about how, um, you know, there's military ways to stop their nuclear program, North Korea's nuclear program, and not, and not harm, uh, you know, put Seoul at risk. This is this is cartoonish. This is ridiculous. There's no way. I mean, yes. in order to stop yes. their nuclear program, it's going to have to take a substantial military effort, okay? And there's no way we're going to be able to do that without seriously imperiling or risking at least Seoul at a minimum. Maybe Japan, maybe the whole yeah. region. Yeah. Yeah, and this is why it's insane that we've defunded the, the State Department, that we've got an amateur running it. Most of the good profession, many of the good professionals have left um, you know, others are being reassigned, and and then we've got you know Donald Trump going to the UN doing his you know kind of it's kind of the equivalent. Now, Khrushchev didn't do it at the UN; he did it at the World's Fair. But kind of like you know taking his shoe off and banging the table with it. It was just uh, it, it is not, in my opinion, frankly, worthy of a president of the United States. Dave, thank you for the call. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you and. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Oh, yeah, Tom, hi. Uh, so regarding this uh, Graham-Cassidy bill, essentially to uh, block grant Medicaid to the states, uh, I think something that needs to be uh, brought up here is uh, let's make sure, um, and this, I think this bill has a, an even shot of passing, but... The one thing I don't want to see, or or if this does pass, let's make the point, and it's probably not in the bill, that, uh, okay, give the states back dollar for dollar what they pay in. In other words, none of this Washington, California, Massachusetts, New York, pay in a dollar and they get uh, 72 cents back. Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, other states pay in a dollar, they get a dollar thirty-eight back. Let's actually do what they want to do. Let's give so if they're gonna put the states on if they're gonna put us on our own, then give us our damn money back. Uh, I, I mean I really this yeah. angers me that, that this is what they this is how they're gonna do it. And frankly, I know it's gonna hurt some people in red states, mostly because the enrollment of Medicaid is disproportionate. And uh, very, very much disproportionate to uh, sort of the eastern south, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas. Matter of fact, 68 of the 70 counties most heavily enrolled in Medicaid went for Trump. Well, I'm sorry, you know what? There are consequences to elections, and as uh, Democrats, progressives, liberals, we have to live with our part of that. Let them live with their part of that. Let them live with what they voted for. So if that means that, yeah, okay, block grant to the states, give us our money back. If, if Washington, California, Oregon, if we have to uh, come up with our own single pair, then we certainly need every dollar that we, that we have coming to us. Don't handicap us by saying, uh, oh, no, you're not going to get that because there's more enrollment in these other states. Well, you know, the, the, um, the Republicans are almost giddy about the fact that if they can pull this off, it's going to hurt worse 
the states that, that are the maker states, the blue states like you talk about, that send more money to, to D.C. than they get back, the Californias and New Yorks of the country. And because they're the ones who started, you know, aggressively doing Obamacare and the Medicaid expansion and everything. And, and it will not so badly hurt, or maybe even not at all, um, depending on your definition of hurt, um, the states that never expanded Medicaid. But the, and, and I absolutely get what, what you're saying, Paul, about um, the maker-taker states thing and, and saying, okay, Louisiana, you know, if you're only going to send 72 cents to Washington, D.C., you're only going to get 72 cents back. Um, the problem is that that's not just limited, it's not just purely a function of Medicaid or Medicare, or, you know, of those programs. You've got, you know, aid-dependent families and, and, you know, the CHIPS program. I mean, there's, there's probably 100 different federal programs, including long-term federal unemployment insurance, that are part of that equation where these, where these red states get more money than, than, frankly, you or I would suggest that they're uh, deserving. I would say that the problem is not so much that it's happening like this. The problem is that I'm betting, Paul, 98% of Americans don't know this. And if it was reversed, if it was the Democratic states who were getting you know, $1.30 for every dollar they send to D.C., and the Republican states, the red states, that were sending more money to D.C. than they were receiving, you would hear Grover Norquist and every Republican politician on the radio, on the television, screaming about this every single day. Fox News would be doing specials on it. Right-wing hate radio would talk about it every day. It would be the only thing that anybody even knew. And as a, but, but, you know, because it's the other way around, nobody knows about it at all. And, and to a certain extent to that, uh, you kind of have to fault the Democrats. But on the other hand, you know, it, it would be so unfair, you know, you, as you point out, punishing people to do it. So, you know, your, your thoughts on that. We're, we're just a little short of a minute shy of, the hit, of hitting the break here, sure. Paul. Uh, well, the, the, the inconsistency here is that, number one, they want to they block grant Medicaid back to the states. At the same time, as we've talked about before, they want to have you, quote, buy insurance across state lines. What that really means is they don't want your state insurance commissioner to have power to regulate health insurance or any insurance in your state. They want the United States Congress. They want big government to regulate your health insurance, whereas that's what they always complain about. So they're talking out both sides of their mouth by saying block grant Medicaid to the states. At the same time, in order to buy insurance across state lines, <laughs> goodbye states' rights. It's all about the Congress regulating your health care. So... They are talking out both sides of their mouth, and it doesn't make any sense. And I, I see, I understand your point about the other factors involved, but uh, I think people need to they need to start understanding that. Yeah, you're paying you're paying for this, California, Washington, yeah. New York. Well, and, and 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 also, also if they if they do it so that it doesn't take effect for a while, which is probably how they'll do it, so that they won't be hurt in the 2018 elections by it, then you know maybe there will be an uprising. Maybe people will wake up to what you're talking about. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. And welcome back. Tom, watching Free Speech TV in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind? Good afternoon. How are you? I'm um, fine. What's up? Calling uh, with uh, this uh, thing uh, that's uh, progressively being talked in my home. When my older children come back home, they're talking more about the... Uh, Illuminati, and how um, the Bushes had a lot to do with uh, being in that and going back far, far way back to the early Bushes. Um, 
I think one of the um, Bushes, not Papa Bush, but one of I think the grandfather was uh, in Congress at the time, uh, and how that yeah uh, Prescott it, Bush that was that was uh, George's grandfather. Yeah, that 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 that, that was during the forties. Yeah, he almost he almost uh, got indicted for funding Hitler. Uh, anyhow, back to you. Yeah, and see, and I'm also. Um, also concerned, and what your thoughts are about that, and also as well as a new world order. And I'm kind of wondering if Trump is somewhat starting that new world order where the Communist uh, Party will be trying to take over the United States one day. Yeah, there there really is no functional Communist Party anymore, Tom. You know, I had the president of the Communist Party of the United States on this program a couple of years ago, and he was very proud that they were up to, I think, 530 members. Um, it's a joke. Uh, there, there are people on the far left, Marxists, uh, you know, some anarchists who subscribe to Marxism and, and some communist uh, uh, perspectives, and, uh, and, a lot of, and the uh, Democratic Socialists of America are growing like a weed, and it's a great organization, but I'm not so worried about them. Um, uh, or any of them, frankly, uh, as a, quote, threat to America. What I think is going on, and I've noticed what you're talking about here, Tom, the, this, this explosion of, oh, my God, it's the Illuminati, or, oh, my God, it's George Soros, which, of course, is code for the Jews, um, uh, at least for many of these people. And, in fact, Hungary now is going after him, which is just obscene. But Hungary is run by Viktor Orban, or Urban, or however you say his name, who's, you know, giving... Uh, uh, the, the guy who's you know, running Turkey, Erdogan, run for his money in terms of authoritarianism. But I think what happens is that when people don't understand why the world is changing around them in ways that they view as detrimental, when people don't understand why um, their, their uh, income is going down, when people don't understand why their debt is going up, when people don't understand why their kids are are not going to make it, a, you know, have a, a life as, as prosperous as they did. Um, the natural human instinct is to try to figure out how and why, particularly how, uh, particularly why. And the easy answer, there's always going to be these David Duke types out there who are saying, oh, the easy answer, I've got it for you, it's the Illuminati, or it's the Jews, or it's uh, you know special privileges for minorities, or it's the it's the Mexican immigrants. Donald Trump tried that. These these are cheap, crappy answers that do not address any real. It's pure scapegoating, pure and simple, and it's so attractive to people because it's an easy answer. Oh, it's those guys at the Bilderberger. They're running the world. No. The New World Order, in its modern incarnation, began with the election of Maggie Thatcher in 1978 and Ronald Reagan in 1980. That was when the, the so-called conservative, um, hardcore neoliberals took over these two countries and set us on this course. It's got nothing to do with these esoteric groups. It's just very straightforward stuff. Welcome back. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's on your mind today? Hey, all right. I, I, I wanted to continue on what you were saying, you know, like, the, you know, the suffering of the people. We, we here in America, as, as like Malcolm X said, uh, we've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, and led astray. And, and one of the reasons is just as you, ju I'm going to continue that, because we never uh, challenge trickle-down, the trickle-down economy. Uh, less is more. Uh, corporations are people. 
and the real culprit, I mean the real black ops in the game, uh, the electoral college. And, and they have turned uh, democracy into an oligarchy. And because of that, yep. capitalism, instead of being uh, like woven into democracy, it has taken over democracy and, uh, to the point where, you know, where, where, where are we at right now? Yep, I, I completely agree with you, Maine. And just a minute ago, we were talking about how sometimes people, when they don't understand why and how these things are happening, they say, oh, it must be the Illuminati, or oh, it must be the Bilderbergers, or the Council on Foreign Relations, or, or George Soros, or very often, uh, you know, and around the world, but particularly with the American right wing, that's code for, oh, the Jews, or this Jewish guy, or the bankers, or whatever. And, and really what it is, as you correctly point out, Maine, is we've been basically robbed by the, by the so-called conservatives, the transnational corporations, the Republicans. And, and it really began, it, it, I mean, it began with the Powell memo in 1971, and then Richard Nixon putting Powell on the court in 72, and then the Buckley case in 76. But it became institutionalized and burned into the fabric of the United States in the 1980s with Reaganism. Main brilliant observation. Very well said. Thank you. Thank you so much for the call. Jerry in Colton, California. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Tom. Uh, I've been listening to you all since you had your radio station down in uh, Atlanta many years ago. I wanted to mention one thing. You were talking about the food companies uh, selling us poison. Well, I noticed years ago that mm -hmm. tobacco companies were under fire, that they started buying up the food companies. They bought Nabisco, Kraft, and I don't know how many other food companies we're all bought up by the, uh, yep. by the tobacco companies, and I thought, what's going on? What are we going to be putting in our food now? Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite ready to go into full-blown conspiracy mode on what are they putting in our food. I, I, I think they, they give us junk food because it's profitable, uh, but they give us tobacco because it's profitable, too, and they know that it's killing us. So I don't think, though, that it's like they sat around and said, hey, let's figure out a way to kill people. It's just... You know, how can we squeeze more profit out of the average American consumer? And most importantly, Jerry, the reason that they're buying these companies and creating these giant oligopolies is to destroy competition, to put small competitors out of business, to put craft companies out of business, to destroy regionalism in food so that it's all national, so that they can control the whole game. Yeah, 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 but nobody was talking about how, you know, the, the, they were allowed to buy all these food companies after they poisoned us for years with tobacco. You know, I, that, that was my point, anyway. Yeah, great yeah, it's pretty bizarre. It's use, using, thank you, Jerry. Yeah, good, good talking with you. Yeah, it, it's, it's quite bizarre. It's basically using blood money. I mean, you know, look at all the people that the tobacco companies killed. Um, arguably, they helped kill my dad. I mean, he died of asbestos mesothelioma, but the majority of people who get mesothelioma uh, do so because they were both exposed to asbestos and they smoked, as my dad did through much of his life. So it's uh, it's bizarre. Gary in Kingmont, West Virginia. Hey, Gary, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, um, greed has no heart ever. You know, I just said, yes. listening to the last half hour of your show, uh, they talked about oligarchy, obviously. Just quickly, two things along. Obviously, with the oligarchy type of America we currently have, we don't really have any statesmen left in our in our process. Uh, there are a few, not many, and we need to get solid people in there. Get active, as you as you are the one that says, get active. And you know, the, uh, Mr. Trump, he always likes to say, drain the swamp. But we need to drain the swamp with oligarchy thinking. 
I'm not saying we're America's doomed, but what I am saying is if we don't if we don't squeeze enough of this greed out of our culture, I guarantee you, almost guarantee you, um, this will will not see the America that we uh, that we really know anymore. Yeah, yeah, I I, I don't disagree uh, at all, Gary. Uh, the question is, how do you do it? I mean, you know, this is the big challenge. And, uh, you know, there was a time in America where we had some relative balance. The tax laws were such that it was pretty much impossible for a CEO to make more than 30 times his average worker without all the money going to the federal government. We had a top 91% tax rate. Um, we didn't allow CEOs to get around that with a giant loophole that allowed them to be paid with stock options. Um, you know, we didn't allow corporations to merge in ways that pushed competition out of the marketplace and fixed prices as has happened in everything from airlines to food to, I mean, you name it, you know, movies, everything. So, yeah, and, and in terms of the lack of statesmanship, which was the first point you made, Gary, I, I look at the Democratic Party and I see a number of people, in fact, I'm seeing 17 of them right now who have signed on to Bernie's Medicare for All bill, and I think about six or eight of them are solid potential uh, candidates for president. I think every one of them are displaying extraordinary leadership skills. I look at the Republican Party, and what I see is an entire party of shills who have sold out to fossil fuel billionaires and transnational companies and banks, and I see no leadership. I mean, there used to be at least an illusion of leadership and statesmanship in the Republican Party. In fact, John McCain used to be the guy that everybody pointed to. All of them have just collapsed in that regard. Gary, we just have 10 seconds. Can you think of a single statesman on the Republican side? No, and that's why I called. It really bothers me. And like you, I know you got to go. I appreciate it. Every day, just like you, Tom, I swear to God, I wake up. How can we fix this? You know, it's, it's really mind-boggling. It's so entrenched. I'm really worried. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is. And it's, and it's money. And as I keep saying, it goes back to... You know, the Powell decision, uh, the Powell memo, and then the Powell decision in Buckley uh, saying that money is the same thing as free speech. So that's it for today. Thanks so much for being with us in the program. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, which includes you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.